This is a Federal News Network podcast. The F-35 has become synonymous with all of the problems the 21st century Pentagon deals with. For fiscal 2023, the top-line budget calls for buying only 61 new copies instead of the 94 originally planned for. The stealth aircraft continues to have problems with performance and sustainability. Here with some of the new problems, longtime critic and fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, Dan Grazier. Dan, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. This plane has been in development well, really for a generation of warfighters. Is this normal, this length of development and deployment cycle? Uh, it's absolutely not. The, the development length of the F-35 is really, is truly unprecedented for aircraft. I mean, we've had entire fleets of, of aircraft that have gone from the drawing board through deployment through retirement in less time than the F-35 has been developed. Wow. All right. So the latest is you have obtained a report that the Pentagon did not classify, but actually did not publish either, that details a astonishing list of issues with this plane. Give us the uh, the highlights here. Right. So uh, it, it was kind of an unprecedented move from the Director of Operational Testing and Evaluation to produce three versions of the report uh, this year instead of the two that are mandated by federal law. And the, the one that has traditionally been made public this year was stamped controlled unclassified information and withheld from the public, but I was able to get a copy of it. Uh, and, and really what it shows is that the, the program is still not ready for prime time. Really. They're still dealing with, with all kinds of issues as far as reliability goes. They still haven't fixed all the cyber vulnerabilities that have been known about for years and, and uh, has still not been corrected. Uh, it also shows that the program's very clunky logistics and, and maintenance network that's all-encompassing information system for the F-35. The, the original one, the autonomic logistics information system, was scrapped about two years ago uh, to be replaced with, um, with a new system. But the new system is uh, still carrying a lot of the problems that the Alice had and has already fallen behind schedule. So... The, the right. F-35 program is still a long way from, from being ready to go. So the result is that the readiness of the fleet that they do have is something like 60 percent, and that's below their target of 65 percent of the planes ready to go at any moment. And they found something close to a 1,000 defects in the plane, and six of those are considered Category 1, that report said. What does that mean? So there's there, there's really like two basic kinds of, of design flaws or as the Pentagon calls them deficiencies. So the category one is the most serious. Those are the ones that could lead to a mission failure or even a you know danger to, to life or limb for the for the pilots. Uh, and so the program has dealt with a lot of those over the years. Uh, and and in this current report, it listed uh, 845 uh, total design flaws. Uh, which is down a little bit from last year. Last year it was 871, but the, uh, the the problem with that is that as testing goes on, the testing officials continue to find new design flaws almost as fast as they're able to clear out the old ones. Uh, and so it's just this this uh, one step forward, three quarters of a step back process that has been going on for years. We're speaking with Dan Grazier, military fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. And what does the report say the Pentagon plans to do next here? What's their, what's their strategy for this? 
Well, so moving forward, the the program kind of stagnated in 2022, uh, or I'm sorry, in 2021, because they cannot get the joint simulation environment. It's a it's this really high fidelity simulation facility down in Patuxent River, Maryland, uh, where they're supposed to test the the really high end capabilities of the F-35. You know, those capabilities of being able to fly directly over the near peer enemy capital and and perform missions. You know, it's it's that those high end capabilities for which we're paying a premium for the F-35. Well, they can't test those in open air ranges, so they need the simulator to be able to do that. And the simulator's been in development since 2015, and it is still at least a year away from uh, being ready to go for these uh, final tests. So what that does, that really kind of keeps the program in a uh, in in. I don't know, kind of suspended animation as far as development goes. So they can't cross that that final hurdle uh, that they need to to move into full rate production. Now, the Pentagon does have the different armed services do have a couple of hundred of these things. And I think Germany said it would just buy another 35 of them, of the F-35. So they do have an engine. They do get off the ground and fly. And there have been some European sorties with them patrolling or so. So what can they do? Because it sounds like they're partially in service. They are partially in service and and the services were kind of were kind of quick to push them into active service. There was a couple of F-35 missions over over Afghanistan a couple of years ago. And, you know, the Israelis have used theirs a couple of times, uh, you know, according to some of the publicly available reports. Uh, it, it, like it, it can fly sometimes uh, and it can perform some of its missions, but it certainly cannot fly often enough to be really operationally effective. And, and it still can't perform those higher end missions that are the, the big selling point for the F-35. All right. And so then what about Lockheed? There were, have been program managers for the F-35 that have really held Lockheed's feet to the fire on this. And that kind of goes back and forth. What's the status of the relationship between the Pentagon or the F-35 program office and and the prime contractor these days? Well, we've gotten various public reports over the years. Uh, Sometimes it's reported from government officials that the relationship is good. Uh, Sometimes uh, they kind of struggle. it, It seems... Largely, the, the biggest bones of contention are the long-term sustainment contracts for the F-35. There's plenty of people in the government. Well, Congress is asking a lot of questions about the, the long-range affordability of the program. And that's not so, like the sticker price of the F-35 garners a lot of attention. But the real cost of the program is the long-term sustainment costs. And because the F-35 was built or is designed largely to be a revenue generator for Lockheed Martin because only Lockheed Martin can perform a lot of the basic maintenance functions uh, of the F-35. Uh, it's going to have a high operating cost because it was designed that way. And, you know, so that that's giving people in government a lot of heartburn because uh, they know that it's going to be really difficult to afford the program at the numbers that are currently planned. So it's a high sustainability cost for the government, but an annuity, so to speak, for Lockheed. Right. It's a guaranteed revenue stream as long for, for Lockheed Martin as long as the F-35 is in service. Uh, and that, that goes all the way back to the original contract, which allowed Lockheed Martin to retain control of all the intellectual property and data rights for the program. So the government has no choice but to go to Lockheed Martin for these long-term sustainment contracts because... They don't own the data rights, so they can't uh, issue a competitive uh, bid proposal for other people to come in and do the same job. And but an even better course of action would be for 
uh, uniformed service members to perform these functions, which is the way things should be. Uh, but that was not the, the strategy that was pursued in this in this instance. And in buying only 61 instead of 94, why buy any until, say, they get it down to 500 defects instead of 845? Right. Well, I, I the official uh, sticking point for the larger buy this year was the fact that the the F-35 is not fully developed. Right now, the program is in block four or modernization. And I always use the finger quotes when I say modernization, because really what that is, the, the program ran, ran out of time and money um, to complete development of the program. And so instead of asking for more time and, and more money as part of the original development process, uh, they just shunted a lot of that work over into the modernization phase. And so the block four capabilities are what is supposed to be the F-35, what was what is promised all these years. Uh, and that's just not ready. And it's a couple of years uh, before that's going to be completed. And so the, the idea behind reducing the annual buy this year was that the services didn't want to buy a, a bunch of uh, underdeveloped aircraft that are going to require ex, you know, expensive and extensive modernization or retrofits down the road. Dan Grazier is military fellow with the Project on Government Oversight. As always, thanks so much. Hey, thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education she was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.